This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am Steve Hausman. I am an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's episode. I'm speaking with Peter Richardson. Dr. Richardson is an author and a lecturer in the humanities department at the at San Francisco State University. Uh, he has written books on many different topics uh, pertaining to the 20th century American West and California specifically, ranging from uh, books about the writer Carrie McWilliams to a topic near and dear to my heart, The Grateful Dead. Uh, he's a, a former chair of the California Studies Association and was formerly a professor of English at the University of North Texas. And today, we'll We'll be discussing his latest book, Savage Journey, Hunter S. Thompson and the Weird Road to Gonzo, which came out in 2022 with the University of California Press. Welcome to the New Books Network, Peter. Good to have you here. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. Why don't we begin, as we always do on this show, by just hearing a little bit about you. Why don't you tell us a bit about your background, and I'm particularly interested in how uh, uh, you became interested yourself in history, in writing, in literature, and in storytelling generally. Yeah, well, I I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area and um, attended schools here in in California and then worked in publishing for a short time, went back to graduate school in English, and then was teaching English for most of the 90s. At which point I um, signed on as an editor at the Public Policy Institute of California in San Francisco. And that's when my interest in writing, reading and writing about California really, really began. And while I was there, I decided to write a book about uh, Carrie McWilliams, who actually was, was uh, Hunter S. Thompson's editor at The Nation. He's the guy who had the idea for the first um, Hell's Angel story that turned into uh, Hunter Thompson's first and and, uh, very successful book. And so Thompson was kind of on my my radar there um, already. Of course, I had read Hunter Thompson before as it uh, growing up, but I was a little belated. Maybe he was 12, I was 12 or 13 years old when he was really peaking. But I, of course, I knew about him and I knew about Rolling Stone magazine. In the course of writing about McWilliams, I also learned about another magazine, Ramparts Magazine, which was published in the San Francisco Bay Area, San Francisco. And um, I didn't know anything about it, and so that started another long reading and writing project. Um, Thompson was an avid fan of Ramparts Magazine, so he was a kind of secondary character in, in that book as well. 
Then I um, decided to write a book about uh, the Grateful Dead, um, partly because um, they figured so perfectly into a class I was teaching at, at San Francisco State. And there was so much to learn and so many people to meet. And um, once again, uh, Thompson was, was a big Grateful Dead fan. So he figured once again in that, um, in that book, more of a tertiary character, really. He wasn't a super important person in the Grateful Dead world. Nevertheless, um, every time I, I wrote a book, I would go back to Thompson and read his correspondence and stuff, and, and I would become more and more deeply interested in him and his work. And then finally I thought, you know, I really should just um, write about him, make him the main character, because, you know, I had to drag myself away from his work every time I went, you know, to, to do the research for, for a previous book. And then that, so that kicked off yet another, yet another project. And I was lucky enough to work with the University of California Press on this one. And, and they, they got it. They got him as a kind of California figure, even though he's very strongly associated with Colorado, Woody Creek, Colorado, where he lived for the last four decades of his life. But I argued in the book that really his, his literary formation, um, the four years he spent in San Francisco, were, were really very crucial. So the books, you know, grew out of the teaching that I was doing at San Francisco State, but they were all sort of connected in a way. One sort of was connected to the other. And, and later I realized that I had really done a kind of a, a series of books about the San Francisco counterculture, kind of informal s- series on the San Francisco counterculture. I think, you know, this will probably be my last one on this topic. The one I'm doing right now is on um, the first 10 years of Rolling Stone magazine. And then I think it's probably time to move on to to another topic or set of topics. But what I've really been able to do, and I think what the appeal was to for me was, you know, I, I was able to kind of research and write about the world that I was born into, born in Berkeley in 1959 and hadn't really thought that much about um, and, and just assumed that that world was, you know, um, generally accessible. It was only later that I learned that, you know, it was very different than the way other people grew up. And, and also that world is gone, you know, you, you <laughs> it's long gone. So, you know, in, in some ways this, this research and writing has been a kind of act of excavation, um, you know, sort of trying to figure out um, this this period and this place um, in the in the middle of the twentieth century. So I'm curious about uh, I have another question about the genesis of of this particular book because um, you know this isn't like a conventional biography of Hunter S. Thompson as you said uh, a moment ago this book really focuses on a handful of years uh, very formative years in in Thompson's life and I'm wondering why you decided to approach uh, uh, Thompson from this particular angle Thompson as a writer Thompson as a literary figure what what drove you to uh, this approach specifically. Well, my training was in English, so you know my my the, my first move, my kind of reflexive move was to was to and also I'd had some some experience as an editor, so you know I was very interested in his relationships with his editors, which turned out to be very important, and so that the stories about his personal life and you know his his kind of personal extravagance and his 
colorful tails and, you know, kind of swashbuckling. Those had already kind of been done. There have been some really good biographies of, of Hunter Thompson, but no one had really taken him seriously as a writer. And I thought that was something that Thompson noticed early on, and I'm not sure he celebrated it. I mean, there were, there were a lot of um, good things, a lot of benefits to him for being a kind of um, cultural icon, you know, kind of a, um, a, a, you know, a public figure. But I think he wanted to be taken seriously for his writing. He put a lot of energy into it and um, didn't feel like people understood what, what made him tick as a writer. Thought that it came easily for, for one thing. And I wanted to show that there was actually quite a long apprenticeship you know, and, and there wasn't a single kind of uh, plan or conscious plan to his career. It was kind of a series of contingent decisions and setbacks and failures and, you know, sort of um, responses to those failures. And that, that in many ways, you know, he didn't sit down and say, I'm going to invent gonzo journalism today. All of it sort of came out of, um, you know, what was going on in, in in the, in the uh, magazine world and the literary world and what was happening politically, all of those things ended up shaping him as a writer in ways that I don't think even he could have predicted. Nevertheless, I think, you know, it's, it's easy now, especially now maybe, to look back and, and just think of him as this kind of um, colorful figure. And I think that would be a kind of, a, that would be a kind of defeat for American letters in the sense that, you know, there was a period between, say, 1967 and 1975 when, you know, he was really, uh, really kind of making his mark as, a, as an American writer. Other writers got that, I think, you know. You didn't have to search very far to find people that, that understood his achievement. But because of the movies, you know, that got made out of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, especially, you know, and just this, he became a kind of cartoon figure. And I think what the problem with that, literally a cartoon figure in the sense that um, the Doonesbury character, Uncle Duke, was, was clearly based on him. And that was in the paper every day for years, right? So, so in a way, and, he, and, and I think he really resented that in particular. He didn't want to be regarded as a cartoon figure. And in some ways, he, he became such a, such, a, such a touchstone for the culture, you know, that as one, as one writer said, he, he sort of stood in front of his work. He kind of blocked our view of his, of his best work. And so in this book, I wanted to make sure that we, we understood him as a writer and that we understood, you know, what made his, his best work so brilliant. I think that that's a very good way of of putting it, and um, you know, just thinking about my own relationship to to Thompson, you know, as a as a kid growing up in in the '90s and becoming a teenager in the early 2000s. I definitely first encountered him through uh, probably the Johnny Depp film. I think at some point someone probably put a copy of Fear and Loathing in my hand and said, well, you like this particular kind of music and you're interested in this kind of culture, so you probably like this book. But uh, I hadn't really, I'll admit, considered him as a literary figure before reading your book. So 
I'm curious also, what's your relationship to Hunter S. Thompson? You said a moment ago that you encountered him maybe a bit later on in life, that you were you were in your early teen years when he was sort of at the at the height of his of his powers, so so to speak. So where did you first encounter him? Uh, what kind of impact did his writing have on you? What's your relationship uh, like with Hunter S. Thompson as as a literary figure? Sure, I, I you know, I don't remember the details. I mean, one one thing about growing up in the Bay Area when I did is that, you know, Rolling Stone magazine was very important. At that time it was it was it was founded uh and based in San Francisco from 1967 to 1977. So as I be, as I became a teenager, you know, it it was already established the magazine was as a kind of tastemaker, you know, of what was cool, not just in the music world, but also culturally and and politically and of course thompson didn't really write about music even though rolling stone was mostly known as a rock magazine so i'm sure i encountered his work there and had you know read fear and loathing in las vegas but you know a lot of young men in particular and and rolling stone very much catered to the readership was largely young men a lot of young men read it had a had fun with it you know these kind of Kind of escapades, you know, and the the drug culture and and um, the road trip part of it. I think that appealed to a lot of a lot of young men. It, it, there was a sense of potency that went along with this this uh, persona that uh, t- an irreverence for sure, you know, and iconoclasm. All of those things, you know, had a, made a kind of strong appeal to to, pe- to people like me. Um, and then, you know, you sort of grow out of it, so to speak. And, and I think what's forgotten, though, is that his political commentary, which was scorching during this period, turned out to be, um, oddly enough, it, it sort of outlived much of the other political commentary of that period. I mean, he was, he was a kind of satirist, and yet he offered probably the most memorable, certainly the most durable, account of the 1972 presidential campaign in Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. And in in fact, in many ways, that book was sort of prophetic. You know, so, I mean, what he, he, in writing about Richard Nixon, maybe we can talk a little bit more about that relationship later, but in writing about the sitting president, um, whom he detested, you know, he he actually sort of shrugged off the... um, the constraints of objective journalism during that time, that is mainstream journalism, and, and, really, and really kind of expressed what he thought was the depravity of Nixon's character. And, you know, that was right before Nixon won, uh, was reelected, overwhelmingly, you know, in a landslide. So to go after a sitting president, a popular sitting president in that way, you know, didn't seem like a really shrewd career move for him, and yet with with Watergate, the Watergate scandal, which which happened, you know, shortly after Nixon's reelection, um, it turned out that that it was Thompson who got it right, not not the mainstream people who overlooked um, Nixon's shortcomings or, or 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 in Thompson's view his his depravity. So um, so much of that work really had legs, so to speak. It really held up well over time, and a lot of journalism doesn't. So, as you say, in the 1990s, he, he experienced a kind of resurgence. A lot of that had to do with um, the, uh, the release of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with Johnny Depp, which happened in the 90s. 
But at that same time, uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was, was um, put into the Modern Library series, which is a very prestigious uh, series of books. And also Thompson's uh, correspondence, two fat volumes of correspondence were edited and uh, published, edited by Douglas Brinkley. And I really think that those two volumes really helped him has uh, uh, helped his kind of his uh, liter critical fortunes, let's say, because people really saw that this was a person. I mean, in many ways, I think that those those letters are his best work. I mean, taken together, they really showed him to advantage, and they showed him for for the kind of cultural observer that he was, the satirist, you know, the uh, the uh, comic writer, you know, incredible precision of his comic writing. And so his versatility sort of came forward with that as well. So it just became easier to take him seriously as a writer with, with the publication of the two volumes of correspondence. So the 90s was, that decade was really important for his, um, both for his popularity, but also for his, for his critical fortunes. And then, of course, he died shortly after that, committed suicide in 2005, and then I think the biographical works, some, there had been some biographical work done in the early 90s as well, but then it became, um, when it became clear that we weren't going to get any more work for, from Hunter Thompson, um, I think it became a little easier to sort of um, focus on, on him as a writer. And that's what I decided to do. Now, I, in the meantime, I had wanted to write about Rolling Stone magazine and... Um, but Jan Wenner, the, the co-founder of Rolling Stone magazine, was already working with Joe Hagen on a biography. And then, of course, Jan wrote his own memoir. So it was only after those books kind of came and went that I decided that I uh, would, would continue working in this vein and that maybe um, I could do something on Hunter Thompson that hadn't been done yet. So before we get too much deeper into the story of Thompson as uh, as a literary figure and, and talk more in depth about uh, his writing in the 1960s and 1970s, we should back up just, just a little bit and talk a little about who Thompson was as a person. I'm not going to ask you to give like a full biography of the guy or anything like that, but just in case anyone listening is maybe a little unfamiliar with him, maybe recognizes his name but doesn't know exactly what kind of associations he has... Can you give uh, just a very brief background on who Thompson was, where he emerges from, and what his sort of cultural identity is in the U.S. and in the West specifically? Yeah, that's, that's very important to understanding his work, I think. So he's born in Louisville in the 1930s. You know, Louisville is, is sort of in the grip of Jim Crow at that time. Um, it's, it's not a very kind of forward-looking place necessarily. He, he becomes... Uh, he comes from a very modest background. His mother was a librarian. His father died when he was young, and um, but he got associated with some of the some of the um, kind of uh, well-to-do kids and families in Louisville, and attended a um, a, a nice uh, 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 got a nice literary training, and was also into sports. He he imagined that he wanted to be a sports writer. In fact, after high school, he, become, he, he joins the Air Force and becomes a sports writer. So he had a lifelong interest in sports. Many of his, much of his most important work somehow touched on sports, and uh, including the Kentucky Derby, which is held in Louisville every year. 
So after the Air Force, he sort of bounces around a little bit, works for a couple of daily newspapers uh, in, the, um, in the Northeast, and then and the Eastern Seaboard. And then he hitchhikes, or rather he drives a, or a car um, across the country, sort of in the mode of Jack Kerouac. He didn't love Kerouac, but he, he, he appreciated Kerouac's achievement, the ability to write these sort of, um, you know, uh, turn his road trips into these kind of adventures. He, wrote a, he was able to write about drugs and, and uh, these kind of the social margins of America for a major publisher, and, and uh, that was catnip for Thompson. He also really enjoyed the work of Henry Miller, and when he, when he drove across country, he hitchhiked down to San Francisco and kind of poked around the, the kind of beat literary shrines like City Lights Bookstore and some, some of the other places where Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg uh, had made famous. And then he ended up moving to Big Sur, where Henry Miller lived. And even though he never met Henry Miller while Miller was there, Miller was kind of traveling a lot during that time, you know, he, he became um, interested in, in, in that kind of coastal outpost. It's about 100 miles south of San Francisco, and very remote, especially then. And, uh, but it was kind of a beat outpost. Lawrence Ferlinghetti had a cabin down there. So... He spends a little time there. In fact, it's, uh, Big Sur becomes the topic of his first national magazine article. Um, but it's very unpopular locally, what he says about Big Sur, and especially his landlady dislikes it. So she, she runs him out of town, basically. And um, he, he does a little bit more traveling, this time in South America, writing as a freelancer for a magazine that's published by essentially the weekend edition of um, Wall Street Journal. Then he returns to San Francisco and um, he, he begins, he's still writing for, it's called the, the uh, National Journal and um, National Observer, sorry. And uh, he's, he wants to write about the San Francisco Bay Area because there's a lot happening at that time. I mean, you know, you've got the counterculture, you've got the Black Panthers in Oakland, You've got campus activism in San Francisco, or rather in Berkeley, and the free speech movement. So um, he tries to get these assignments from the from the National Observer, and they don't—they're not really biting. So he's starting to look around for another source. At this time, he also starts to to read Tom Wolfe, and he realizes that Wolfe's brand of the new journalism is perfect for him. You know, he doesn't really want to be a, a kind of daily reporter. Uh, he wants to he wants to do what Tom Wolfe is doing, and he realizes that he can kind of carve out a, a little niche for himself by um, studying these kind of exotic West Coast subcultures, you know, um, hippies and and um, motorcycle gangs and things like that. That's not his original idea, though. As I said earlier, Kerry McWilliams of the Nation he begs Kerry McWilliams of the Nation for an assignment, and McWilliams says, why don't you write about the Hells Angels? And uh, Thompson embeds himself with the Hells Angels for a couple of weeks, submits the story, the story does really well, he parlays that into a book contract, and then rides with the Hells Angels for another year, and um, writes, writes the book, Hells Angels, um, which turns out to be a critical and commercial success. 
So he comes, he comes to San Francisco as kind of an obscure journalist. And uh, within a few years, I mean, he's, he's sort of, a, you know, a, a best-selling author. And that's, that's a kind of a pivot point for him. While he's in San Francisco, he also um, gets, meets Ken Kesey and befriends Ken Kesey, um, the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He meets uh, Allen Ginsberg. He, in fact, he shares a pot dealer with Allen Ginsberg. He meets Warren Hinkle, the editor of Ramparts magazine, and really admires what Ramparts is doing. He never writes for Ramparts, but he, but you know, I think if 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 Warren Hinkle had stayed with Ramparts a little longer, we would have seen something f- from uh, Thompson and Ramparts magazine. And um, even before the Hell's Angels book comes out, though, he moves to uh, uh, a small town outside of Aspen called Woody Creek, Colorado. And in many ways, what I argue in the book is that. Um, this is part of the back to the land movement that the, that the hate Ashbury, which he writes about for the New York Times magazine, the hate Ashbury is kind of crumbling after the summer of love. He doesn't really want to be in San Francisco anymore. So he moves to, to Colorado. I mean, um, a lot of people move, right? Um, Ken Kesey moves back to Oregon and a lot of people move up to Sonoma, Mendocino, Humboldt County. A lot of the, there's a kind of hippie diaspora, and people st- start to scatter and leave the hate. Even even bands like the Grateful Dead, who were sort of pillars of the San Francisco rock community, moved to Marin County, just north of San Francisco. Bill Graham moves, Janis Joplin moves, you know, uh, Jefferson people in Jefferson Airplane moves. So people kind of scatter during this time, and Thompson lands in this little burg outside of outside of Aspen, Colorado. Nevertheless, he, he maintains his contacts with, with the San Francisco journalism world, and um, he, he begins writing for uh, Warren Hinkle's new magazine, Scanlon's, Scanlon's Monthly. And it's there that he writes, he decides to write an article about the uh, Kentucky Derby, of course, which takes place in his hometown. And it, it, it's so satirical and uh, hilarious. He come, I mean, it's, it's the sort of thing that you can imagine writing a satire of your own hometown. And, you know, that kind of, um, that kind of knowledge, you know, knowing just where to skewer your hometown, he has that. And so he, he goes back and, and he's, he's paired with Ralph Stedman, the, um, the uh, Welsh illustrator, meets him in Louisville for the first time, and um, he doesn't really like the story that he submits, um, but Hinkle realizes that it's a game changer, especially when he pairs it with, with Stedman's illustrations. And most people consider that article, uh, The Kentucky Derby is Decadent and Depraved, as the first work of gonzo journalism. Thompson thought it was hor- that his part of it was, was pretty bad. He thought it was a career ender for him. Um, but in fact, um, as soon as it comes out, he starts getting letters of congratulations. And, and he later says that it, it was like f- falling down an elevator shaft and landing in a pool full of mermaids. Um, so he gets a letter from Bill Cardoso, who he had worked with earlier, a friend of his. He's kind of 
Cardoso was a kind of wingman in one of his earlier articles for Scanlon's Monthly. And um, uh, Cardoso says, man, that article, that Kentucky Derby article is totally gonzo. And Thompson is shrewd enough to realize that that label um, can be applied to his work going forward. And he sort of, he sort of makes that part of his, part of his project. Um, nevertheless, he doesn't really see that that kind of article, that kind of mix of of, of uh, satire, comic, you know, um, comic satire and and invective and sort of extravagance, and you know, they're just they go on this kind of bender. He and Ralph Steadman in the article that that sort of wild tale is going to become his most valuable literary asset. You know, he still sees himself as kind of a serious journalist. So he goes back to doing um, serious journalism, especially after um, Scanlon's Monthly tanks, after, uh, after publishing only eight issues. So he has created Gonzo, but, but he, he's, he's not committed to it yet. He doesn't really understand that that's, it's his meal ticket going forward. And um, he needs another place. He needs another outlet. And Jan Wenner swoops in. Jan Wenner, who had worked at, at uh, Ramparts Magazine and had seen the Hells Angels book in the editorial office uh, when it first came out in 1967, has now created Rolling Stone Magazine. And he, he understands maybe that, that Thompson's stuff could work with his readers at, at Rolling Stone Magazine. I mean, it's not clear where he's going to publish this kind of work. Right? Is that is Esquire's not going to publish that work? You know, Playboy magazine's not going to publish that work. Uh, you know, Saturday Evening Post. I mean, who's who's going to who's going to publish this stuff? So, uh, luckily for Thompson, but also luckily for Rolling Stone, they they decide to team up and uh, and after in short order, he I mean he does a serious a piece of serious work. Um, on the Chicano movement in Los Angeles called Strange Rumblings in Aslan without um, Stedman's illustrations and without the kind of uh, comic extravagance of, his, of the Kentucky Derby work. But um, pretty soon he's in, he, um, he decides to um, take, take a break from the um, Chicano movement Piece and drive from Los Angeles to to Las Vegas, and he does that with a with a Chicano attorney named Oscar Acosta, and he it's a Sports Illustrated assignment, but Sports Illustrated rejects what he submits, um, which infuriates him. But he decides instead of just you know taking the kill fee and moving on, he decides to double down and actually expand the work and turn it into a, a kind of piece of um, a piece of fiction, not with himself and Oscar Acosta, but with his alter ego, Raul Duke, and <clears throat> Acosta's alter ego, Dr. Gonzo. So that becomes this kind of crazy road trip, um, with, including a weekend in Las Vegas. In fact, it ends up becoming two weekends in Las Vegas because he returns to cover a, a convention of narcotics uh, law enforcement, you know, attorneys and, and cops. And he and, and Acosta kind of attend that, and, and then Thompson writes about it. 
And that becomes the basis for a two-part article in uh, Rolling Stone magazine that appears in November of 1971. And then shortly after that, it becomes his second book and another big best, you know, bestseller and, and critical success. And this really is Gonzo. It's probably the, the, the most famous work of Gonzo journalism. And Gonzo journalism really, you know, nobody else is really doing Gonzo. Gonzo is just kind of a, a kind of code word for what Hunter Thompson was doing during this time. It's related to the new journalism that preceded it, but it's, it's so uh, specific to him that um, it becomes his sort of, um, his sort of, uh, signature uh, in, in, the, in the mass media at that time. I mean, there are other accomplished journalists, like, and new journalists like Tom Wolfe and Joan Didion and Gay Talese and others. But with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Thompson is really moving into new territory, sort of taking, you know, taking new journalism, kind of squaring it to the point where he's not only a participant in his in his journalism, as George Plimpton had been in, in his, for example. But, but in, in some sense, you know, in Gonzo journalism, the world kind of reveals its meaning through his warped consciousness, right? He's, he's the indispensable part of the story. There, there is no story with that, without Thompson in a way. <clears throat> so that work really, really establishes him um, as, as, as a kind of premier journalists, it certainly adds another dimension to Rolling Stone magazine too, which Jan Wenner sees immediately. And, and Jan Wenner then be, becomes the person, probably no person has done more to establish Thompson and Gonzo journalism as a, as a kind of franchise than Jan Wenner. And then almost everything after uh, this point is, is considered um, a work of Gonzo journalism. Most of it for the next few years is, is published by uh, Jan Wenner and, and Rolling Stone magazine. I'm gonna stop there because there's a, there's, the next move is, is actually a, a, a critical addition to that, but that, that, that's basically the story of, of Gonzo journalism. It was kind of a happy accident. It, it didn't have to happen, you know, and it was a response to kind of setbacks of different kinds, you know, like publishers going out of business or you know his his articles um, being rejected by the by the publishers that had by the magazines that had commissioned the work in the first place. I mentioned Sports Illustrated; they had rejected um, his Las Vegas article, but Playboy had also rejected one of his works that eventually appeared in Scanlon's Monthly as well. That was a that was a profile of the Olympic skier Jean Claude Keely. So in some ways, you know, he was struggling with his magazine work before he landed um, at Rolling Stone magazine. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
It sounds like people didn't really know what to make of this guy and this this uh, 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 this sort of uh, unique style of writing that sort of blends fact with fiction and that, as you said, puts Thompson very much at the middle. That he was sort of a uh, he was as much as he was a known quantity to to an extent that his style was so unique that people were were kind of confused about where he really fit. Exactly, and he wasn't he wasn't a typical Rolling Stone writer. He was older than most of them. Um, he was he didn't have a college degree. Most of the a lot of the Rolling Stone people had attended UC Berkeley with Jan Wenner. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And the other and the ones who didn't were younger and had and had college degrees. And that 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 was kind of the the audience for for Rolling Stone at at, at that time. Um, he was a veteran. You know, he had been in the Air Force. Most of them had and he was about a decade older than Jan Wenner so it wasn't obvious that he was a perfect fit for them he didn't write about music you know so it it, it was really a chance that Jan Wenner took I think and and uh, Thompson had his own doubts about it too you know he once he once told um, Jan Wenner that there were a lot of people out there who who you know wanted to read him that didn't give a I can't even say it on the podcast, <laughs> but he did, didn't give a damn about, um, you know, what the Jackson five ate for breakfast. You know, it wasn't clear that a rock magazine was going to be the right place for him either. I think he really was still seeing himself as somebody who should be in, in, you know, Playboy or Esquire or something. And eventually he did write for those magazines, but they, they were not, you know, they were not accepting his work. And I should also add, I mean, we haven't really talked about the, the role that drugs play in this. I mean, coming out of San Francisco, you know, at the blossoming of the San Francisco counterculture, he was, a, he was an enthusiastic drug user. He was a big drinker. I mean, he, and that's what he had in common with Warren Hinkle. But um, he also, you know, was, was sort of an ardent consumer of um, all different kinds of substances and that figured in his work. And I think that made that, that by itself would have made it difficult for him to appear in some mainstream outlets. It was perfect for Rolling Stone. I mean, you know, because Rolling Stone, it was a rock magazine, but mostly it was a magazine about, uh, that was rooted in the counterculture, the counterculture and its music. But don't forget the counterculture part, you know, and that, that actually has a, polit- a political dimension to it as well. And so the next phase of Thompson's career is going to be um, him covering the 1972 presidential campaign. Now, you know, no one in Washington, D.C. cared what Rolling Stone said about American politics. Most, most of the people on the campaign trail, candidates and, and other media people, uh, hadn't even heard of Rolling Stone magazine or read it. So so it's when he takes on that assignment to, to cover it from the campaign from beginning to end, he really doesn't have any advantages over his colleagues or competitors, if you will. Um, he doesn't have the resources. He doesn't have the, you know, the, the um, inside scoop. He doesn't know the people. He doesn't know the mechanics of the campaign. Um, you know, he just doesn't have the cachet. But he turns all of those to advantage you know, by doing what he does telling the unvarnished truth as he understood it, which a lot of mainstream outlets could not do. Their editors wouldn't, wouldn't accept work that explicitly kind of uh, uh, told those kinds of home truths 
that all the reporters knew to be true. I mean, they shared they shared these observations with each other, you know, at the end of the day at the hotel bar, but they couldn't smuggle them into the kind of hard news format that their editors were demanding, you know, object so-called objective news. So um, that, you know, Thompson was free to do that. He wasn't coming back. You know, this wasn't his beat. He wasn't going to, he, he, there were no bridges to burn, you know. He could just go ahead and say what, describe what he saw and put his own little flourish on it. And, um, and then that, that begins a long series of dispatches that appear in Rolling Stone magazine. Those are gathered together at the end of the campaign season. It ends with, of course, with, with Richard Nixon's landslide victory. And the book comes out um, the next year and it's another <laughs> critical and commercial success. And it was also a kind of game changer for the media because um, of course it did, you know, uh, Hunter Thompson didn't affect the outcome of the election at all. I'm sure he didn't move the needle in any way, even though that was sort of the hope that, that Rolling Stone had when they put him, put him on the assignment. It was the first uh, national election, presidential election, in which 18-year-olds could vote. And Jan Wenner thought maybe if they could you know, uh, do a really great job, they could get more more young people to vote and vote for the Democratic candidate. I mean, there was no, they didn't hide their partisanship at all. There was no doubt, you had no doubt about where Hunter Thompson stood or where Rolling Stone magazine stood. They were for the Democrats, in this case, uh, George McGovern. And Thompson actually zeroed in on McGovern's rivals, even within the Democratic Party. So the first thing he does is go after Edmund Muskie, who was, who was a kind of odds-on favorite early on, you know, just the most savage, you know, takedowns of him. And uh, hilarious, really, but also, uh, you know, nothing, nothing, you couldn't, there was nothing like it anywhere else in, in the American media at that time. Then Hubert Humphrey. And then when those two were out and George Govern was the, was the Democratic candidate, Thompson did everything he could to show McGovern to advantage. The other thing about these, this work is, um, I mentioned the drugs earlier on. I mean, Gonzo journalism, the kind of journalism that he's doing on the road, begins to include not just invective and satire, but also uh, hallucination. You know, it, it, you see it in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but you also see it in, at the end of um, uh, Fear and Loathing on the, uh, uh, on the campaign trail. So, you know, it's just an extraordinary, it, it's so different from everything else out there. It's really perfect for the readership of Rolling Stone magazine, but it, but it begins to catch on outside of that readership when the books appear and, um, you know, begin to reach other, other readerships. And as I said earlier, the, the uh, campaign stuff really um, is regarded as prophetic. I mean, the, the, other, the other reporters didn't, you know, cut him a lot of slack. You know, there was a kind of hierarchy within the, the White House and campaign press corps that didn't include people like Hunter Thompson, who was a newbie, you know, at that point. And don't forget, I should, I should mention at this point that Thompson had an assistant, Tim Krauss, working with him on the campaign, Krauss wrote his own story for Rolling Stone magazine that then became a book called The Boys on the Bus. 
It's, and it's another extraordinary study of how the campaign press corps and the White House press corps work. It's almost a kind of ethnography of the White House, of the White House and campaign press corps. And you can really see you know, why um, the mainstream media was leaving so much meat on the bone um, for people like for people like Hunter Thompson. In in a way, they they couldn't communicate or express what they knew to be true. I'm talking about the other reporters now, um, because it just wasn't acceptable. It just didn't match their editor's view of what um, mainstream reporting was. You know, so so. Thompson shattered that, and, and, and in doing so, he, he changed the way future, he didn't affect the election's outcome, but he did affect the way subsequent campaigns were reported on. And, and that's a huge achievement, especially when you consider what he, the daunting challenge that he had, reporting, you know, he represents a rock magazine from San Francisco, an upstart rock magazine from San Francisco. You know, that, that, that doesn't cut a lot of ice in the D.C. press corps. And nevertheless, he ends up producing, you know, uh, as I say, not only the most memorable account of that campaign, but also the most durable one. I mean, you can go back and read it um, with appreciation uh, now, 40, 50 years later. And the person who, uh, one person who pointed that out was a later Rolling Stone uh, writer who won a National Magazine Award for his political commentary. And that was Matt Taibbi, who turns out to be a huge Hunter Thompson fan. In fact, you can really see Thompson's influence in Taibbi's early early work. Um, he sort of shrugged that off, but um, they had a, they had a lot in common. It, not just the invective and the hyperbole, but also the um, you know their interest in sports and and there's there's a whole other list of things that they have in common. But but that. Those, those books, so now you've got Hell's Angels, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. Those three books are kind of the, you know, th- th- those are the peak years for Hunter Thompson. And so what happens next? I mean, as you said, uh, Nixon is, who, who, who Thompson loathes, right, is, is reelected in 1972. Um, followed not that long after by by his downfall in Watergate. And with that, the era that, um, at least for people like me, Thompson is most associated with, the, the, the kind of peak years of the counterculture in the 1960s and the Nixon era of the early 70s, that all ends. So after this point, where does he turn his literary attention to next? What's the kind of, uh, I hate to call it a coda because he has a long career after this, but what, what happens after the Nixon era? What, what is uh, uh, Thompson writing about? How does his writing style change after this? Yeah, in a, in, a, in a way, Nixon's downfall is a, counts as a kind of loss or setback for Thompson. I mean, you know, he really hated Nixon, had hated Nixon for a long time. Didn't write about Nixon um, until about 1968. He, he, Thompson was a big John Kennedy fan, and so Nixon begins to appear as a kind of bete noir in the, in the, in the 60s. He's also a Robert Kennedy fan. Um, so, uh, you know, he never liked him, but, but it's only, it's only in the late sixties and early seventies that you get this kind of peak, um, this, this kind of new register for Thompson where we actually, he actually compares 
Nixon to a werewolf at one time. You know, that's his claim to Rolling Stone readers. There's a werewolf in, living in the White House. And th this is two weeks after his landslide re-election. So, um, you know, one, one of Thompson's biographers called Nixon Thompson's muse. In some ways, Nixon brought out Thompson's best stuff. So when he resigns and goes away and is replaced by Gerald Ford, I mean, what do you, what's somebody like Thompson going to do? It's, it's, you know, he's, he can sort of rehash some, some of that stuff, but he has, he has to move on. The Gonzo franchise is firmly established now. So what do you, where do you go with it? And he does write some important stuff on Jimmy Carter, who he really likes a lot. And like McGovern, Carter was by no means a kind of a kind of favorite in the in the Democratic primaries of 1976. But with Thompson's support, and not, not that Thompson, you know, was kind of moving the pile, but Thompson certainly supported Carter. Carter ends up getting the nomination, and um, and the victory in 1976. But there's not a lot of satirical potential there. And um, Thompson needs something new to write about. And it's at this point, too, that Thompson's vices are beginning to catch up with him a little bit. I mean, he had a, he had a very unusual process for writing. Maybe not so unusual when you, if you do a little bit of digging, but, but he, was a, he drank a lot um, every day. And one of the ways that he, he um, got his work done was he took doses of dex dexedrine, a kind of amphetamine, that he started taking um, on prescription in the um, early to mid 60s. And that combination of wild turkey, bourbon, and dexedrine was, was kind of his elixir. You know, that, that's, what he, that's what he amped himself up on before he sat down and, and wrote his stuff. And you can see that, that speedy quality on the campaign trail, you know, this kind of teeth grinding uh, <laughs> dispatch, you know, submitted at the last second and oh, not delirious in, in any way, but just kind of, you know, uh, it's, it's not restful. It's not relaxed, you know, it's on, it's edgy. And um, so, and the dexedrine stops working for him. And right about this time, he also, um, he needs more and more to get the same effect. And right about this same time, he, he's introduced to cocaine, which he had kind of abjured as a kind of, um, he didn't think it was a, a, a great drug, uh, certainly not for someone like him. But um, he begins using cocaine, which does not help his writing at all. And um, so, but he's still kind of using it to, to kind of get in this state um, where, he, where he can write. And, and so his powers begin to decrease um, during this time. Jan Wenner provides what I think is maybe unmatched editorial support for Thompson. Uh, I don't, I've asked some other people, literary historians, if anybody got more editorial support than uh, Hunter S. Thompson. I, I just can't think of a single writer who was helped along uh, with, uh, you know, with research assistants editorial assistance, you know, taking care of his every need, um, down to specific typewriters being shipped around, you know, to, to making sure there was a, a great bar wherever he was posted up and, and so on, and making sure Ralph Steadman was on hand to do the, to do the illustrations and so on. So 
So he had a lot of support and nobody could produce, even no, you know, even with nobody could produce a Gonzo masterpiece without him. But to produce a, a Gonzo masterpiece, it took more and more people to help him. And that, that, that's a kind of, that continues on um, starting in the early to mid 1970s. He later said that he never did a second draft of anything he wrote after Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which tells you a little bit about how much editorial support he was getting. Now, remember too, that a lot of this stuff is being filed remotely. He's living in the Rocky Mountains and um, 1977, uh, Rolling Stone Magazine moves to New York City. So, but even when it was in San Francisco, the, everything was being done remotely. And he's using this mojo wire and he's sending in little scraps on his schedule. And he had this kind of vampire schedule where he was staying up until seven o'clock in the morning and, you know, typing letters to, to people in the middle, calling people in the middle of the night. So to edit him was grueling, right? You had to work on his schedule and, and, you know, he'd send things in in the middle of the night. You had to be there to kind of stitch them together. And then when he goes to sleep, you, you've still got work to do, right? So after about a week of that, most of his editors, you know, uh, were, were pretty um, exhausted, sometimes in tears. And one of his editors said, there's not a single person who's edited him that didn't break down sobbing at some point. So that's the period that we see in the mid-1970s, late-1970s. And, uh, you know, the, 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 um, the brand is established now, and the, the question is how to monetize it. He begins doing lecture tours. Um, the lectures are not really lectures at all. They're, they're, they're sort of, it's sort of performance art where he comes out and just plays Raul Duke. Really, that's what people are coming out for. And he's often drunk and um, so on. So, and the other thing is they start doing anthologies of his work. So the great shark hunt comes out and that, that sort of stitches together all, this, all of this um, work that hadn't been published already in book form. A lot of his um, articles and essays and, and um, other pieces, some were new, but um, you know, the Great Shark Hunt comes out in the late 70s, maybe 1980. And that, that introduces, him, introduces him to even more readers. But in 1980, Ronald Reagan becomes president. And you would think that would be grist for Thompson's Mill, right? Who better than, than Ronald Reagan to make fun of and to excoriate? Um, and Thompson really isn't up to it. You know, he... He stops going to, he stops covering campaigns. He stops going to kind of news sites. I think the last kind of news site that he goes to is the 1984 Democratic National, National Convention in San Francisco. And he doesn't write about it. So he, also, he also drops the ball on a couple big assignments, um, most notably um, Vietnam. He goes to Vietnam and by request. It's, it's what he wants to do, but he doesn't write anything of importance for the magazine. He also goes to Zaire to cover the heavyweight championship match between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. And he doesn't even attend the fight, you know, much less submit um, a manuscript or some copy for, um, for the story. So this really um, kind of, you know, weakens the, the connection between Thompson and Rolling Stone magazine 
and Jan Wenner in particular, it becomes kind of personal at one point. Thompson accuses uh, Wenner of canceling his life insurance when he's in, um, when he's in uh, Vietnam. So he's, he stops becoming a regular contributor to Rolling Stone magazine at that time. And more and more of his income now comes from, from books, from his um, book-length works, which are still kind of largely anthologies of other work, shorter work. So, um, you know, I would say that it's a kind of, it, it takes decades, um, but he's really not producing at, at, at peak levels um, after 1975. He's still capable of, of, you know, occasionally of, of knocking one out of the park. You know, he does a, he does a very funny piece about um, a high-profile high divorce that involves one of the Pulitzers down in Florida. I think that comes out in 1980 or so, in the early 80s. Um, he does a Nixon's obituary, which has become a kind of short classic. That was in the 90s. And... Um, he also wrote a very notable piece on 9-11. By that time, he was writing, believe it or not, for ESPN online, you know, which gives you a sense of how kaleidoscopic the, um, the media had become by that time. He had sort of reverted you know, to becoming a sports writer, you know, writing about the Super Bowl and especially about the NFL. So, you know, it was, a, it, was, it was quite a long decline. I, I would call it a decline, even though, you know, he becomes more and more of a celebrity. I think uh, as a writer, you know, he's, he's quite diminished going into the 80s. I forgot to mention one other gig that he had in the 1980s was he was a columnist for the San Francisco Examiner, which was a Hearst newspaper. In fact, it was the original Hearst newspaper, the monarch of the dailies. And, uh, you know... <laughs> Hearst papers had been a, had been kind of um, the butt of many of his jokes over the years. He really didn't have a lot of respect for Hearst or Hearst newspapers. But by that time, Will Hearst, who was running the Examiner and had been a friend of was a friend of Jan Wenner and had worked for Jan Wenner before taking over at the Examiner, realized that you know by bringing on people like Warren Hinkle. And Hunter Thompson, they could they could sort of jazz up the San Francisco Examiner, which was sort of the number two paper in San Francisco by that time. So he did a, a lot of columns, I think 175 columns or so for the San Francisco Examiner. Those were collected into an anthology as well. But again, not his best work. So as we begin to wrap up here, taking Thompson's uh, uh, writing as a whole, especially his peak years of writing in the, the kind of the, the middle decades of the 20th century, the 1960s and early 1970s, what do you see as his legacy? Or maybe maybe another way to ask that question is, what do we learn about this era in American life, in American history, by reading Thompson? And, and especially by reading him as he is as a writer, right? By, by his sort of take, uh, his gonzo take on the counterculture, on Richard Nixon. What do we take away? What's his sort of broader legacy, both as a writer and as a, a kind of prism through which to view this era? That's a great question. And I think, you know, even though Thompson wasn't a classic kind of countercultural figure, you know, he wasn't a hippie um, in, in any way. I haven't mentioned his run for sheriff 
1970 in Pitkin County, Colorado. That was another kind of extravaganza. That's what introduced him actually to uh, his, the, his first article for Rolling Stone was about his bid for sheriff um, in, in, his, in the county where he lived in, in Colorado. Um, I wouldn't say that's, that's part of his legacy, but what he realized and what the magazine, Rolling Stone magazine realized was that the mainstream media was not paying enough attention to the counterculture. That the counterculture was far more important than the mainstream media gave it credit for. And, and that included its music. That, that really was the, the secret to Rolling Stone magazine's success and, and Thompson's with it, right? So the, the counterculture, I mean, it begins as a kind of fracture within the white middle class right around this time in, uh, in American history. And a lot of people, and I, including Thompson, thought, well, the counterculture was over by 1971. But I would, I would argue and have argued, argue in the book that the counterculture really um, unfolded over the entire second half of the 20th century. That is that it's an example of what people call, historians call the long 60s. That these issues that were, that kind of um, manifested in the 60s and 70s ended up becoming, you know, kind of durable fissures and splits in, in American culture and American politics. And that they're not kind of hermetically sealed, you know, things that, that ended with the 1960s, right? You can't just comfortably fit them into this little silo called the 1960s and say, well, that was then and, and, and you know, it doesn't matter anymore. I would say that what Thompson... Thompson's work shows us is that those fissures and splits and fractures from that period um, very much shaped American culture and politics over the second half of the 20th century. That's why we can still read his campaign work in 1972 and learn something, right? It, it wasn't written in sand. It was, it was something far more important than that. So I would say that's the number one thing that, the, that this kind of, um, this kind of underestimation of the counterculture and its importance um, is, is the thing that, that gave Rolling Stone magazine and, and Thompson an opportunity in the first place. I'm not sure that, you know, Thompson becomes Thompson without those kind of social energies that are kind of, and political energies that are already swirling around in the, in the 60s and 70s. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say, um, and also not commented upon enough, is that Thompson was a shrewd media critic. There wasn't really a branch of journalism at that time called media criticism, you know, where the media looks at itself and, you know, rates itself, uh, you know, for not just bias or, you know, this shortcoming or that shortcoming, but things, you know, more systemic than that. You know, that what, what passes for objective journalism was, was a kind of mindless neutrality. And almost everything that, that Thompson did was looking both ways. He was looking at the thing he was writing about, Hell's Angels, you know, uh, 1972 campaign trail. But he was also looking at the way the media was covering it. And usually he was looking at the way the media was failing to cover it. And, you know, the ability to sort of... Um, tell those unvarnished truths are exactly what his readers at Rolling Stone magazine 
love. That's why they read Rolling Stone magazine. You know, they could get they could get the news from any number of other sources, but but it was very clear to young people at that time that they were not getting the straight story about the things that affected their lives. They were not getting the straight story about Vietnam, you know. Many young people obviously were concerned, wanted to stop the war, but they were also concerned because they were being drafted into it, right? So so they're very much more interested in many ways in, in the war and some sort of in understanding it than um, than other parts of uh, than other parts of the American population. And the other thing was drugs, right? So young people um, understood that the media was not telling them the truth about drugs, especially marijuana, but not only marijuana. So that you know when Nixon declares his war on drugs. Um, just prior to um, his reelection, you know, young people realize that it's an attack on them. You know, that the whole point, and that becomes clear. John Ehrlichman, um, Nixon's domestic policy advisor, says that explicitly later, that the war on drugs was was always already a political war. It was a war on people who were not going to vote for Republicans. You know, it was people, the hippies who were not all that political. But if you could kind of keep them on their on their back foot, that would that would help the Republican Party, the Republican electoral chances, and also the black community. You know that was a way to sort of um, tie up black activism at that time, which is not going to break toward toward Republicans. So so Ehrlichman acknowledged that explicitly later, and um, so I think that those were the kinds of issues that that Rolling Stone addressed and um, that young people appreciated during that time. And all of that, I think, sort of flows from, you know, a larger awareness of how the media worked and didn't work. And I think uh, Thompson and Tim Krause, by the way, um, was, was a sort of early media critic before we had what we now think of as media criticism. And then for my last question, I always like to get a preview from my guests about what they are working on now. You mentioned uh, at the start of our conversation uh, that you're working on a new book about Rolling Stone. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're trying to say about Rolling Stone, what your sort of take on this very influential magazine is? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, there have been some great histories of Rolling Stone magazine um, in the past. So it's very important, as always, to, to sort of understand what your own unique contribution is going to be. I think what what hasn't been explored is the magazine's kind of tangled relationship with the counterculture. That is, you know, it's it's not going to be successful without the counterculture. Its co-founders, uh, Ralph Gleason and Jan Wenner, sort of certainly understood the power of the counterculture and its music, very importantly. And um, and they realized that there that the regular media outlets were not going to cover cover the counterculture fairly or accurately. They weren't going to really take the music seriously. I mean, there was a lot of coverage of the Beatles or Elvis, but it was sort of breathless. And, and it was considered a, you know, kind of a fad or, or a kind of symptom, you know, of social pathology somehow, you know, what's wrong with these crazy kids? And uh, Gleason and, and, and um, Winter understood that it was far more important than that. And that was really that's really what launched Rolling Stone magazine in the first decade. But it was a very tumultuous decade. The success was never guaranteed. Um, a lot, you know, a lot of things had to happen 
for Rolling Stone to achieve the success that it did. But I think the first thing is to understand, you know, the, the importance of the counterculture and the nature of the counterculture and to understand that even though the magazine took the counterculture and its music as its main topic, it itself was not really, you know, a countercultural operation. A lot of people don't get that part. And so I want to make sure that people understand that um, even though it had a kind of hip lingo and hip cachet, basically it was um, very much, you know, in the, in the middle of the media ecology at that time and, and how it operated and um, what, it, what it did well in that department. And the other thing is the media criticism that I just mentioned and the particular way of reporting on, on um, politics and, and political commentary. A lot of young people were drawn to that because they weren't getting what they wanted from, from the other mainstream outlets. So it was a kind of alternative source of media, but its own relationship with the counterculture was, was very checkered, right? I mean, it, it was kind of rejected a lot of the radical politics of the counterculture and clearly favored kind of, you know, Kennedy style Democrats and then later McGovern and Carter. So, and that had a lot to do with Jan Wenner and Hunter Thompson. So I just want to kind of clarify and, um, and refocus, you know, our understanding of, of the magazine and its influence. It, it really, you know, it really became one of the most important magazines of its time uh, between 1967 and 1977. Those, those were the years it was in San Francisco. And then when it leaves San Francisco, you know, it goes on, it's, it's less associated with the counterculture at that time. It goes on to, to great success. And, um, but it, it leaves San Francisco. Uh, Wenner claimed at the time that San Francisco had become a kind of a provincial backwater. And, uh, you know, the, it wasn't a global rock capital at the time. Um, it, it was in the, you know, from 1967 to say 1975. Um, Winter moves to New York City, and that that begins a whole other chapter of the magazine. But it's also a new chapter for the San Francisco Bay Area, which which attaches, you know, its hippie utopianism not to rock and roll music or Rolling Stone magazine anymore, but to tech, right? So the very the very year that Rolling Stone leaves for New York City is the year that um, two hippies, music fans, Dylan fans, Beatles fans, bring out the Apple personal computer and kind of revolutionize um, global tech. And instead of becoming a global rock capital, San Francisco becomes a kind of global tech capital, uh, which it is to this day. So, so there's a kind of split there, but there's also some it's not just the ruptures, it's also the continuities that are kind of interesting to me, and I want to make sure I clarify in this next book. Dr. Peter Richardson is uh, an accomplished writer, uh, the author of many books. He's a scholar of uh, California history and California arts and letters, and is a lecturer in the humanities department at San Francisco State University. And his newest book is Savage Journey, Hunter S. Thompson and the Weird Road to Gonzo, which came out last year in 2022 with the University of California Press. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Peter. My pleasure, Steve. Thanks for having me.